welcome to Consumer Choice Radio. We are coming to you on Saga 960 AM in the Peel region, Ontario, and on the Big Talker 106.7 uh, out of Wilmington, North Carolina. Um, I am flying solo this week as your host. This is David Clement. Yael is off gallivanting uh, in the islands of Greece. Um, lucky him. Hopefully he brings me back something nice, but I doubt he will. Um, great show today. Uh, we are joined first by my trusty colleague, Elizabeth Hicks, and then by Professor Peter Jaworski. Um, so we'll go right to it. We're here uh, with Elizabeth Hicks. She is the U.S. Affairs Analyst at the Consumer Choice Center. Um, my very trusty colleague, a great friend of Consumer Choice, and she is here to talk to us about the Consumer Choice Center's Electric Vehicle Accessibility Index, which was just published this week. So thank you very much, Elizabeth, for joining us on the show. Yes, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Awesome, awesome. So, so I mean, it's it's no secret. You and I worked on this uh, index together, which we published okay. this week. Um, give our listeners a feel for what we were trying to accomplish. What does the index actually tell people in regards to how accessible electric vehicles are? Yeah, absolutely. So the purpose of the index was really to showcase throughout all the different states how accessible it is for citizens of each state to actually purchase and then register an electric vehicle. What we found is a lot of states have a lot of limitations, unfortunately, on how consumers within their own state can purchase and then register their electric vehicles. I find it really fascinating because, as we know, the electric vehicle revolution is well on its way. We've seen many very large legacy manufacturers start to make commitments to moving towards emissionless vehicles that they are going to be producing almost extensively and exclusively for some of these big manufacturers. And so with this electric vehicle revolution coming, it's really time for us to make sure that consumers have access to these vehicles. And that's really what this index is showcasing. Highly recommend everyone go to our website and take a look at it. We have a really cool interactive map where you can see for your specific state what the regulations are and how accessible electric vehicles are for you. And unfortunately, we did find a lot of states that have many limitations. So hopefully we can get those revised pretty soon. Yeah, and so for for our listeners, um, the worst states on the index are Alabama, Arkansas, Iowa, Kansas, Nebraska, North Dakota, South Carolina, West Virginia, and Wisconsin. All of those states actually ban direct-to-consumer sales uh, for electric vehicles, and they actually have a higher licensing fee um, when you if you do buy one. Uh, out of state, if you want to license it in the state, you pay upwards of two to three hundred percent more, uh, so considerably more, which is which is super unfortunate. North uh, North Carolina, um, which is obviously one of the states where this index uh, or where this radio show broadcasts, did not fare so well either. It has a barely accessible score, which is about as low as you can get without um as low as you can get without scoring a zero right. so it, they have limited sales for um 
for electric vehicles. So I think they allow for Tesla to have six stores. And then on the licensing fee, if you want to license an electric vehicle in the state of North Carolina, it's going to cost you 130 bucks. The standard vehicle registration is 36 bucks. And so Liz, I'd love to just hear you explain why there's a disparity in the licensing fees. So why have some states created licensing fees that are higher for EVs than for an ordinary vehicle? Yeah, it's a great question. And, you know, it has a somewhat unfortunate answer. So as we know, there are gas taxes in every state. The purpose of these gas taxes is to really discourage consumers from using a lot of emissions. There's a lot of climate goals for each state to reduce emissions from their citizens and overall contribute to helping the environment. So what happened is when electric vehicles came to the market and became more prominent, states started losing revenue from gas taxes. As we know, electric vehicles do not require gasoline. Therefore, the state was not making money from these electric vehicle consumers because they weren't purchasing gas at the pump. And so to offset those law, that loss in revenue, the state ended up increasing registration fees for consumers who are registering their electric vehicles. For the standard passenger vehicles in, I think it's 20, 28 states, it has higher registration fees for electric vehicles, which is ridiculous in my opinion. If we want, the gas tax was created to deter people from using more emissions, and yet those who are making that green choice are now being punished by their state governments to help you know, fund different projects within the state. So it's really unfortunate that the intention of the gas tax is now being kind of thrown back in the face of those who are really trying to make that greener choice and be more environmentally conscious. Yeah, it, it really, I mean, gas taxes are problematic because they're aggressive, they, yeah. they hit poor people, yeah. all of those things. I know Yael and I have chatted about all forms of, of taxation like that in the past, but if the government is going to try to nudge people away from consuming gas, um, that may be a battle we've lost. No state is, I, I don't think any state is going to consider getting rid of the gas tax because they rely on it for so much revenue. But if you're going to try and nudge consumers away from gas and then they do it, they can't punish them by doing exactly what you wanted them to do. Um, So it seems incredibly counterintuitive to hit these, hit these eco-friendly, let's call them consumers with additional fees. Um, In your mind, which state is the worst state? If you had to pick one, let's single one state out for the poor folks Well, you know, uh, in whichever state you pick. I'm probably going to have to call out Iowa for being the worst state, especially because this state is known for, you know, trying to have more green within their economy. Of course, it's a state that relies heavily on agriculture, ethanol, things of that sort. So to me, it's really shocking and unfortunate that they both have a total direct sale or direct ban on the direct sales of electric vehicles directly from manufacturers. And they also have a pretty increased licensing fee as well to then register those vehicles. So it's a huge loss for Iowa. And I hope that they change these policies so they can be ready for the electric vehicle revolution, or unfortunately their citizens are going to be left behind. And who's done it right so I know we've talked a little bit about the doom and gloom of, uh, <laughs> of, of, of who is, who's failing, but 
Are there any states that are, are doing a particularly good job? Yeah, you know, Florida of, of how they handle. I would it? say Florida has been getting a lot of positive attention recently, and I think they're going to get some for the electric vehicle accessibility as well. What we found in Florida is that they totally allow direct sales from manufacturers to the consumers, which is a huge win for every Floridian. And then also their licensing fees to then register those electric vehicles are the exact same as it would be for any other standard passenger vehicle. So they don't have any discriminatory policies against consumers for having electric vehicles. And they actually do have some incentives within the state as well to help um, encourage more consumers to make that switch too. But I think the most important is that they just allow the direct sale and the consumers are not being punished through a penalty, which is the licensing fee. Yeah, I mean, on the licensing fee, I also want to highlight Nebraska which is particularly um, bad (laughs) in regards to the licensing fees. So a regular vehicle, I believe is only about 15 bucks to register. And an EV is, is five times that amount at 75 bucks. So I mean, that's a, that's a really tough policy in my mind to justify. And I also highlight, I also highlight (laughs) Nebraska because ironically enough, uh, we did. Uh, it's always funny to see how some people respond to things like this. So we had a a gentleman who will remain unnamed um, email us in regards to Nebraska's policy defending the ban on direct sales and defending the increased licensing fees for electric vehicles because he feels that uh, it is a liberal joke to see what the liberals are doing to our country and it sucks. Um, which is a pretty hilarious take because really we're just arguing for parity and deregulation. But um, I guess it's one of those things. Who knows what it means to be a Republican anymore? I mean, we've had Mark Sanford on the show. (laughs) He's certainly puzzled by it. Um, I'm puzzled by it. So maybe this is, maybe this is just what we're facing uh, in the coming days. Yeah. It's, it's crazy. And, And then real quick, I mean, you mentioned that um, that some of the major manufacturers, so this isn't necessarily about Tesla, although they're the, the kind of flashiest right. um, company in the market. There are some other companies that, that are kind of, let's call them legacy auto manufacturers that are making this shift. Do you have any of the info or the data on what some of these other companies are doing? Yeah, definitely. So GM, which is a huge manufacturer here in the US, they announced that they're going to be opening a 2.3 billion with a B dollar plant in 2023 to manufacture 500,000 electric vehicle batteries. So that is major. Another big manufacturer, Honda, has recently committed to selling only electric vehicles by 2040. Hyundai, which they're going to invest $7 billion in the U.S. electric vehicle production market. And then Ford, which is another huge U.S. manufacturer, they announced that half of all of the Lincolns that they'll be producing will soon be emissionless. So there's been a lot of headway here. I think, too, you know, Tesla is a great example of just a totally electric vehicle company that is disrupting the market in a really good way, in my opinion. But we're also seeing other manufacturers, what I like to call legacy manufacturers, who have been around for a very long time. They're also 
coming up to speed with electric vehicles. I think recently, you know, Mustang had uh, an electric version come out that looks pretty cool. Prius has been on the market for many years. There's a lot of electric vehicles available and every single major manufacturer at this point is selling at least one uh, model that is either fully electric or a hybrid version. And we're going to see that substantially increase in the future. Yeah, it was it was funny to see Joe Biden uh, at the Ford plant in uh, in Michigan, roll his right. sleeves up and give a rah rah speech to to union members, and then hop in an electric F one fifty and and kind of cruise away. Um, so it's definitely here. I mean, the one thing that we should just briefly discuss in the in the last two minutes or so that we have is why these dealer franchise laws exist, and so. If you could just briefly explain why why does why do auto manufacturers legally have to pay or, or legally required to have someone else via a dealership sell their vehicle? Why does that happen anymore? Yeah, that's a historical um, situation that happened back when the automotive industry was first getting you know much more robust. We didn't have the infrastructure within the United States to really ship the vehicles throughout throughout the country. And so what happened is these manufacturers set up franchise dealerships to help you know, move along um, the sales of cars. At one point in time, though, these manufacturers, there was three big ones at the time, I won't call them out, but there are three big ones who put on some more monopolistic tactics, if you will, and really pressured these franchise dealers to purchase the cars from these manufacturers and sell them, even if they, if these dealers knew that their consumers or their area, or even if the economy was not ripe to have these cars sold, the manufacturers kind of just stuck it to them and made sure that they would buy them anyways. If they refused, then they would lose supply to all of the cars from those manufacturers. So it was a pretty unfortunate situation. But what happened is then these dealerships, these franchise dealerships came together to um, create these dealer franchise laws that protected them from monopolistic tactics of these big mm -hmm. manufacturers. Unfortunately, now though, these dealer franchise laws are really out out of date and they are way past their expiration date at this point. It's unfortunate because now it's banning new companies from really being able to come in to try new ways of selling cars and is really just making sure that everyone sticks to that traditional model. We've seen electric vehicle companies you know, come to market recently, and they really are choosing not to do that traditional franchise model, mostly because there's a lot of cost increase with having those brick and mortar stores to sell them in. Mm -hmm. There's that middleman that gets put into the process, which can lead to an increase in price for consumers. So there are better ways now within our digital economy and our the all the innovations we've had infrastructurally, we just don't need these dealer franchise laws. The last thing I'll point out is Carvana, which is an, a brilliant Really big online car dealership that sells used cars. They released a report recently and it showcased that the um, amount that people are buying cars online increased 37% within the last year. And yeah. one thing that they also noted is that they saw a 24% increase in the electric vehicles. So it's a yeah. huge market right now. Yeah, it's one of those things people who defend these laws forget that you can do all of this in the used car market. So why you can buy a used car direct but not uh, not a new car direct is beyond me. Uh, that is it for uh, our chat with Elizabeth Hicks. Beyond the break, you will hear me chatting with Professor Peter Jaworski, so stay tuned for that.
And we're back on Consumer Choice Radio. I have the pleasure of uh, introducing our next guest. Uh, Our next guest is Peter Jaworski, who is a professor of ethics at Georgetown University's McDonough School of Business. He spends his time researching and writing about the ethics and economics of the global plasma industry. Peter, thank you for joining us on Consumer Choice Radio. Yeah, thanks very much for having me on the show. So I, I know you're you're probably itching to to chat about to about plasma, but I did want to first chat with you about vaccine lotteries because it, for me they I feel like they overlap in terms of the ethical concerns and whether they're effective and things like that. So some U.S. states have have started the process of creating a lottery. Um, upwards in the millions of dollars for folks who do get the COVID-19 vaccine. I believe Alberta has followed suit and done something similar. Um, from your point of view, the work you do as someone who is um, researching and writing about this full time, what is your take on vaccine lotteries? Are they effective? Are they ethical? Yeah, great question. Uh, you're right. There is a common thread between my research and my work on the global blood plasma industry and the case of using incentives, including financial incentives, to encourage people to get vaccinated. And that common thread just is the the question of the effectiveness of those incentives. So you mentioned the lotteries. Um, There's one, the Vaximillion lottery in Ohio, and we actually have some results from that. There's also uh, a large uh, lottery in the state of New York. We don't yet have good data on that, but there have been others as well. You mentioned Alberta, but also Hong Kong. In Hong Kong, a real estate developer put up an apartment worth, uh, I think it was 1.4 million US dollars. So, so there is a lottery that they started on May 28th. Uh, and it was started by a real estate developer. And you can win as a grand prize this really expensive and fancy apartment building. Okay, so like I said, we have some results. We have results from Hong Kong as well as from Ohio. The effect of the Vaximillion lottery in Ohio has been incredibly positive. I mean, the numbers simply soared. I have them here in front of me. Um, let's see here. So. Um, I should have them here. Why don't I have them here? At any rate, the the numbers were off the charts, especially for younger people. So people who are 16 to 17 years old, 96% increase in vaccination rates in the state of Ohio. Uh, Amongst other people, we saw increases that were greater than 50%. In Hong Kong, you saw May 28th, they institute the the lottery for the apartment. You saw an increase from 10,000 vaccinations up to 15,000 the day after. And the latest data that we have uh, on June 1st, you had somewhere on the order of 35,000 people being vaccinated uh, uh, daily. So you can see that these are effective and I would expect them to be effective in Alberta and in New York as well. I, I can only imagine, I, I've seen some um, I've seen some folks, if you want to say, in the center-right universe gripe about, like Congressman Thomas Massey was griping about whether it was an appropriate use of, of public funds. But at least from my perspective, look at the, like if we look at this as a, from a cost-benefit analysis, what is the cost every day the pandemic roars on and you have restrictions and business closures 
but also people getting sick. There's an immense financial cost in terms of people getting sick, people dying, etc. I would assume, um, although we probably don't have the figures on this, but I would assume that this would, by leaps and bounds, pass a cost-benefit analysis in terms of the financial savings on a macro level. Um, I'm not sure if you've seen any research on that or if you have any um, comment on whether or not it, they do meet that bar, but at least from my perspective, for me, it feels like a no-brainer. The state of New York, the state of Ohio receive federal funds. Taxpayers are going to be footing the bill for a public health measure. The question is what's going to work and what's going to be most effective. Traditionally, we use information and education campaigns. So, okay, is it Thomas Massey's position that it is better for the government to hire a marketing firm and put together really fancy you know, television advertisements and radio commercials and put together glossy pamphlets and maybe some magazine advertisements? That's a really good use of that tax money. But creating a lottery that spends the same amount of money, right? It spends the same amount of money, that's... Yeah. So I don't understand, if the objective is to increase vaccination rates, then the only question that matters is what's most effective here. And it seems clear to me that the use of financial incentives, including lotteries, uh, it looks to be effective. I wanted to mention too, that there have now been two studies. One is a preprint, so it's not yet published. The other one appeared okay. in Nature and both of those showed, I mean, the one in Nature showed that um, incentives up to $100 for people to go had a minimal impact on vaccinations. The other, the preprint had a larger sample size and it found a positive relationship between almost any amount of incentive going up. So that would be, and you know, the data that I've seen in the past suggests to me that we should anticipate increased vaccinations at increased levels of incentives, right? So mm -hmm. we do have data for it and yeah. that's the way to go if you want the objective. And it's like how to spend it properly. I'm just not a fan of advertisements, I guess. Well, yeah, and it goes, it reminds me, there was a good Andrew Coyne piece in the Globe and Mail where it was like the pandemic has taught us that the government is really only good at giving people money. It's not very good at administering these very complex plans. And I can only assume that um, hiring a marketing and PR firm would be uh, probably a lot less effective than just saying, hey, do you want a shot at willing, winning a million bucks? Um, that sounds that sounds pretty pretty good to me. I should, um, I should add to so, that, by so, the way, that you get, pardon, pardon my interruption, but you get bigger bang no, no, for no, your no, no buck. Worries. You get bigger bang for your buck with the use of lotteries than, for example, a straightforward incentive. So if you have a lottery for $5 million and suppose it costs you $5,100,000 to put it together, or whatever, $5,100,000 yeah. to put it together and to run it, you will get a higher benefit than if you proportion that 5 million and gave people what they would expect to receive given the probability of winning mm -hmm. that sum of money. The way people deal with those probabilities is different and people tend to really like the idea of a small probability at a very big prize rather than to get the expected mm -hmm. amount when you multiply the probability by the large prize. So it's better that way. Yeah, yeah, it's like if you were to take the money, divide it up, and it was twenty bucks for to to go and get vaccinated, you may not see the same uptick uptick as you would um, if you were to offer people the chance to win a million dollars, five million dollars, ten million dollars, whatever it is. So, 
um, tapping into a bit of human psychology there in terms of why people respond to uh, odds in certain ways. But another issue um, that you have, I would say, made kind of international headway on is compensating um, those who donate their blood plasma, um, something that's widely accepted in the United States, um, something that is not necessarily widely accepted elsewhere, and it's uh, not very um, prevalent in, in Canada with several provinces having bans on it. So would you mind just framing for our listeners what it means to donate plasma and why it works in terms of compensating people for their donation? Yeah, so plasma is the yellow part of your blood. It's the part within which the red and white blood cells and the platelets are suspended. Uh, plasma is also contains a, a number of proteins. And what we do is we take that plasma, we separate out the other components, just the proteins um, in that plasma, and we create plasma-derived medicinal products or just plasma therapies, including immunoglobulin, clotting factor, uh, albumin, and a number of others as well. These are really useful for people who have certain rare diseases, um, um, a lot of rare blood disorders like hemophilia, for example, benefit from the use of these plasma therapies. Uh, there are also uh, a variety of other ailments like multifocal motor neuropathy, um, and also you know, primary and secondary immunodeficiency patients and people who have auto, autoimmune diseases, they rely on these therapies as well. And at the moment, basically the entire world is overwhelmingly dependent on the United States. The latest figure that I've seen is 66%. 66% of the entire world's plasma used to manufacture these therapies comes from the United States. If you add Germany, Austria, Hungary, and the Czech Republic to that total, you get 89%, as high as 89% of the entire world's plasma for making these drugs, these medicines, and if you, if you think about that, that's 5% of the world's population contributing nine-tenths of all of the plasma of the world. Canada is over 80% reliant on the United States. And you're right, Alberta recently overturned that. Um, um, of which I think you deserve a lot of credit for. Uh, I, I, that can't go without saying, because you were one of the people kind of loudly beating that drum for a long time. And then finally... Um, legislators there um, with a lot of just completely ridiculous criticism uh, coming their way did do the right thing and, and did uh, overturn that misguided ban. So I, I do have to say kudos to you for that one. Uh, I really appreciate that. You also put pen to paper and wrote a number of opinion pieces that I had uh, that I think had a significant effect as well. So yeah, as, as, as I was saying, um, Basically, the world depends on the few jurisdictions that permit commercial plasma collections using uh, a financial incentive model. The United States and the other four countries in Europe that I mentioned, they pay people to donate plasma. By the way, this is perfectly safe, and of course it is, right? That was one of the, you know, Ontario banned payment for plasma donations back in 2014. One of the biggest arguments there was that this might be unsafe, that like we can't pay for plasma, it would be unsafe. But notice, please notice that Canada uses pay for plasma. So of course it's safe. It mm -hmm. has to be. Both Health Canada and Canadian Blood Services have repeatedly said 
that the therapies made from plasma given by donors who are compensated is just as safe as the therapies made from the plasma of people who are not compensated. It's just as safe, right? So we are seeing here a similar situation when you consider vaccines and also plasma, because the, the situation that we find ourselves in as a result of the pandemic is I think pretty dire for patients who depend on these plasma therapies. So, you know, on top of all of the other devastating effects of the pandemic is the fact that there has been 25 to 50%, I've heard as high as 50 50% reduction in the number of plasma donations in the United States. And the United States supplies 66% mm -hmm. of the world. So we are about to confront yeah, that, I mean, a shortage. A sounds like a pretty monumental shortage. Yeah, and, it depends and, I mean, on I how badly imagine... it goes. Yeah, there was. Um, yeah, I was going to say I can doctor... only imagine how. Please go ahead. Oh, sorry. I was just going to say I can. I was going to say I can only imagine how devastating that would be for. Although I don't know anyone personally who relies on these medicines, I do know that they are incredibly important in terms of quality of life and all sorts of other important um, factors in in how someone lives. I I can't imagine what it would be like to see a shortage of 20%, let alone 50%. Um, I do know quite a few uh, patients who rely on these medicines and you're exactly right. The therapies help people's lives, but um, they are also the kind of therapies that save lives as well. So if you are someone who is immunodeficient, you, you know, uh, a lot of people are familiar with the boy in the bubble Right? Do you remember there was a movie yep. and, and, and stories <laughs> yep. about the boy in the bubble? So uh, people who, who have immunodeficiency, their body doesn't create antibodies or, their ant or the antibodies that their body creates are in um, various ways deficient. So what people who suffer with immunodeficiency have to do is they either stay at home or they use immunoglobulin replacement therapy. And they rely on the antibodies that are present in your, in my plasma in order to fight off common diseases. So for, for you and me, the common cold is nothing, no big deal. But for somebody mm -hmm. who has an immune deficiency, a common cold can kill them because they simply don't have the antibodies. We have to go to break, but if you don't mind, I'd love to have you with us for our next portion, if you can spare another 10 or 15 minutes with us, because I think there's a lot more here to discuss. And we're back on Consumer Choice Radio. Uh, you're listening to Peter Jaworski, a ethics professor at Georgetown University's McDonough School of Business. Uh, we were just chatting about the possibility of a blood plasma shortage, the misguided uh, policies of some governments that prohibit compensation for blood plasma donations. Um, I, I, I want to dig in here into either for vaccine lotteries or for plasma donations, some of the ethical questions. So some people um, on Twitter especially have loudly argued that there is some aspect or level of coercion in regards to compensating folks to get a vaccine or to donate their plasma. Um, I don't 
view that as coercion in any way. I think that's because I view coercion very much in the literal sense. They're not being forced. It's, it's, it is an incentive. But um, I know you've done a lot of research on this, including um, uh, some, some very uh, influential and important scholarly works on it. And so what is, what is your response as someone who teaches ethics um, in regards to the, the, the question of coercion? Yeah, that's a great question. So let me respond by first echoing what you said. I also don't regard at least the models that we have, at least the, the things that are operating um, both for plasma donation as well as for the vaccine lotteries, I don't regard those as coercive. Uh, the thought behind that argument is that when you make a medical decision, you should pause and you should think about what's best for you. And then there are relevant considerations or reasons of the right sort to make a particular kind of medical decision. And then there are irrelevant or reasons of the wrong sort to make the very same decision. People argue that when you wave money in front of people's noses, then they might make a medical decision on the basis of the wrong reason. Like they might do it in order to get the incentive rather than because they've spent some time thought about it and decided that this is the best thing for them to do. I think in the case of vaccinations, most people don't find that persuasive because we have overwhelming evidence that getting vaccinated is a good idea. Um, and uh, people ought to make that decision. Of course, I'm not saying that people should be forced, but I am saying that that is a reason of the right kind. In the case of, of plasma, what we're worried about is somebody who is so desperate and the amount of money is so large that there is nothing else that they think about apart from the money when they make this medical decision. Now, again, in the case of plasma, donating plasma, look, we encourage people to do it for free. It's a safe procedure. For your listeners, I want to encourage them to both get vaccinated and also to donate plasma or blood, right? You should donate blood or plasma as well. Yep. It's a safe procedure. It's not, it's not surgery or something significant. And the sums of money that we're talking about are in fact large, relatively speaking. It takes about an hour and a half to donate plasma. You used to be paid about $50 to do it on average. Now that has, that has risen to about $75 to $100. So that's a lot per hour, but we're not talking about thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars. It's not $50,000 that people are offered and then they can't think about anything other than the money in their eyes, right? Um, so I don't, mm -hmm. so even if you want to make an argument that this is coercive, the way that it's practiced on both the vaccine side and the plasma side, I just don't find it compelling. And what are some of what are some of the other kind of major ethical questions that you faced in 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 regards to what you're doing? What what else does the opposition say? Yeah, great question. Um, so here are the two, I, I guess, major ones. The one that I came across often in Canada and still comes up in Canada and in other places too is: look, people should give plasma out of pure altruism, out of the kindness of their hearts rather than out of a regard for the thickness of their wallet. Right? That's the argument. People should be altruistic. And so there's something wrong with a system where we allow people to give plasma and be paid for it. 
I have a couple of things to say in response to that. Uh, one is we don't know, actually, uh, it's an assumption that people who give their plasma and receive money in exchange, it's an assumption that they are not doing it with pro-social or altruistic reasons. Um, you might think it's a reasonable assumption, and I agree, it's a reasonable assumption, but it would be good if we tested it. Why would it be good to test it? Because consider that a nurse is paid for what he does. And yet we think of nurses as people who do it both for the money as well as out of pro-social concern. Same with the doctor, same with the phlebotomist. It's kind of weird. Everybody at Canadian Blood Services, from the administrators down to the workers, everybody gets paid to do what they do, except for the person whose plasma it is. And we don't question the altruism of any of the employees of Canadian Blood Services. It's just the, the donor's altruism that is questionable. Okay, so that's one sort of response. I think that's, you know, I'd love to see a study on it. The second response is to say, hold on a second. The point of a plasma collection system, a blood collection system, is to ensure that we have enough supply to meet the needs of patients. That's the point. The point of this system mm -hmm. is not to give you and me an opportunity to do something altruistic or, a, or an opportunity to be beneficent. That's not the point. That's a nice feature about blood donation. It's a nice feature. It's a nice to have, but it's not essential. It's not the primary point or purpose of this system that we have in place. And if that's true, and if it's true that paying people for plasma donations ensures that patients have enough product in order to be able to continue to live, then we need to adopt that policy. You know, so much the worse for opportunity for altruism. Just go ahead and hug people more often, right? Because it's not as yeah. though we're at a loss for opportunities for altruism or beneficence. Yeah, we we can't have. The warm and fuzzies can't be priority A in terms of ensuring we have enough blood or blood blood plasma. Uh, the priority should be whatever the most effective uh, voluntary system is to, like you said, meet um, meet the needs of patients, and especially for plasma, if there is a shortage coming, I can only imagine that we're in for a world of hurt. Um, I do also want to just kind of comically chat about some of the more hilarious objections you've gotten because I and you, you you'll have to prime our listeners for this one but I, you did receive some rather strange criticism from uh, members of the Alberta NDP in regards to your stance and your involvement in some government testimony so prime our listeners to to some of those strange criticisms as the as the um, the maybe maybe the American in the room. <laughs> yeah, I, I did appear on a committee discussing um, the Voluntary Blood Donations Repeal Act, which was put forward by uh, through a private member's bill by MLA uh, Tani Yao. And so when I appeared at committee, the first question was, why is an American interested in Canada's um, system of plasma collection, right? And that, that is funny because I actually went ahead and went to Twitter and changed and added one of those emojis or icons or whatever at the top that had the Canadian flag. Uh, because with this MLA, and I forget her name, but what she failed to look at, and I think it's kind of funny to not even bother to do basic research on the people who are appearing at committee, is that I am Canadian. Right? 
I became a Canadian. Now, yes, I was born in Poland, but, uh, uh, but I did come to Canada when I was nine years old. Uh, I became a citizen four years later, and I've been a Canadian, you know, for my entire almost now, well, the majority of my lifetime. I've been a Canadian, a proud Canadian. I still cheer for the Toronto Maple Leafs, although this was uh, very disappointing and depressing. Wow. But the Blue Jays, the Blue Jays are doing fantastic. Yes, yeah, the Blue Jays, the Blue, the Raptors aren't any aren't good anymore. The Leafs just continually disappoint, but the Jays are still, they're still feeding the flame a little bit. Um, yeah, I mean, I, when I saw that exchange, I ended up actually writing about it. It just seemed so strange that. It was almost like the merits of the arguments against blood plasma. It was like she knew that there wasn't anything in her case. And so she had to somehow question your motives or your own personal incentives. Or, and I, I, I see this all the time. It's like, oh, well, maybe, you, maybe you're funded by big blood. I'm, I'm still not sure where big blood is or who big blood is. <laughs> I've yet to find such an entity or conglomeration of big blood. Um, but I just found that it was hilarious that right off the bat, it was like, okay, well, we're not going to get to the substance. Um, we're going to question your motives in what I think would have been outright xenophobic. If, you were not Amer like if she was not accusing you of being American, if she was accusing you of being Brazilian or Mexican, it it would have been very uncomfortable. That would have been something that that skirted the lines of what would be considered very inappropriate for a public official. Um, and so, yeah, it was just so strange to see. But um, for anyone who's interested in uh, that article or Peter's exchange, we will put those in the show notes because. Um, it is quite entertaining to see our public officials behave in such an embarrassing way. Um, we have a we have a few minutes here, Peter, before we wrap up. Um, what else are you working on? Because I know you've published books on um, on 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 applying the market to everything. You were the very wise person who once said to me, uh, "Anything that you can do, anything that you can legally do for free, you should be able to legally do." for profit, um, which, which a lot of people, when they first hear that are like, well, I don't understand what that means. And then you explain it and you're like, Oh, okay. Now I understand the arguments for some very taboo topics, whether it be sex work or, um, anything in those, in, in, in that regard, but what else are you working on? What can we, what can we hold our breaths for, um, coming down the pipeline here? So I do have, uh, thank you for all of that. Let me just comment one last time about the politician who asked me those questions. Sure. Uh, yeah, I, I agree with you. I think I think in a way, I, you know, it does take me aback a little bit. I'm always surprised when people feel free to say anti-American things in, you know, a Canadian legislature or, or a, a parliament um, in Canada. And I think that's disappointing and, and it's exactly right. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. Even if I were an American, it shouldn't matter. And the arguments should stand on their own. Okay, in terms of what I'm working on and what you should hold your breath for, I have a couple of articles coming out. One is uh, an article that I wrote with my uh, friend, David Faraci, also a philosopher. Um, uh, it's called On Spaces for Altruism. That's coming out in Public Affairs Quarterly. I think it actually just came out. 
and that addresses this argument about the importance of spaces for altruism. Um, so when I said the point of collecting plasma is to make sure we have enough for patients rather than to provide a space for altruism or an opportunity for people to be beneficent, that comes out of that article. So that's coming out. I have two separate articles that I'm working on. One is coming out in an Oxford University press book on exploitation with my colleague, Mark Wells, Dr. Mark Wells, who is also a philosopher. Uh, so we argue first in one paper, that's the one coming out as a chapter in a book, uh, that paying people for plasma donations is not exploitative according to any of the theories of exploitation that philosophers have thus far constructed. The second one is an attempt to show that Canada's behavior purchasing plasma from the United States is itself possibly wrongfully exploitative of Americans. So that's an effort to sort of flip the argument on its head and to demonstrate that at least some of the actors on the Canadian side are behaving in ways that are plausibly described as wrongfully exploitative. I'm also looking at the gift market distinction and um, trying to work on that as well. That's very interesting. Um, I'll be I'll be looking forward to that. Um, the, I've read a lot of your work. I, I can't recommend it highly enough uh, for our listeners. You will learn all sorts of interesting things that people pay for, like folks who will will cry and mourn at your funeral, uh, to all sorts of other um, maybe culturally bizarre examples for for those in North America. But Peter, thank you very much for joining us on Consumer Choice Radio. Thank you for having me. I appreciate the time. that does it for Consumer Choice Radio. Thank you for joining us for the hour and for all the other past shows and archives. Check out Consumer Choice Radio for much more. Consumer Choice Radio, hosted by Yael Ososki and myself, David Clement, is a syndicated weekly conversation featuring the latest news, interviews, and expert analysis that covers consumer topics from around the world, focusing on innovation, tech, regulatory policy, and science, Tune in every week to learn why consumer choice matters. You can find all of our previous episodes, interviews, and show notes over on ConsumerChoiceRadio.com, as well as the podcast version of this show. And as always, be sure to subscribe and rate us wherever you do listen to your podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter at ConsumerCRadio, myself at Y-A-E-L-O-S-S, and David at Clement Liberty. And find our interviews on YouTube and Instagram just looking up Consumer Choice Radio. If there is a consumer issue affecting you that you think that we should cover, email us directly at hello at consumerchoiceradio.com. Thank you again for listening.
heart. You were destroyed through COVID-19. Hallelujah. Glory. 